0: You're listening to the BH Photography Podcast. For over 40 years, BH has been the professional source for photography, video, audio, and more. For your favorite gear, news, and reviews, visit us at BNH.com or download the BNH app to your iPhone or Android device. Now here's your host, Alan White. Greetings and welcome to the BH Photography Podcast. Today we are joined by Margaret Erb and Michael Perillo, the director and associate directors respectively of the Saul Leiter Foundation. And today's topic will be the work of Saul Leiter, a pioneer of color photography and that of the foundation itself. Let's start off with some intros. Margaret is the director of the Saul Leiter Foundation. She worked for the Howard Greenberg Gallery for 18 years during which time she helped to assist Leiter organize his archive. She helped to produce his first book, Early Color in 2006, as well as many other books on Leiter's work. She co-produced the film Saul Leiter in no great hurry. And in 2014, she helped establish the Saul Leiter Foundation, Michael Perillo is the associate director of the Saul Leiter Foundation and president of its board. He joined the foundation in 2015 after spending 20 years as an editor and writer. Michael has worked on the Leiter books All About Saul Leiter, Travel Eye, New York Women, and In My Room. He's also the executive producer of the short film Sing, is a neglected enterprise. The Saul Leiter Foundation. Um, welcome, Margaret. Welcome, Michael.
1: Thank you. We're so glad to be here. What a great program. Indeed, we're delighted to join you.
0: (laughs) Let's start off a little bit of a a, a little uh, bio, bring people up to uh, uh, speed in case they're not as familiar. uh, uh, And we have a a, a nice little synopsis here. Uh, uh, Saul Leiter was born in Pittsburgh in 1923, uh, uncoincidentally the same year my mom was born. Uh, He is the son of an eminent Talmud scholar and a rabbi in Pittsburgh's Orthodox Jewish community. Saul initially attended school to become a rabbi as well, before leaving to find his fate as an artist in New York City. We're going to find out, stay tuned, if he stuck to his uh, religious beliefs. Um, He continued to paint throughout his life, uh, but with early encouragement of none other than W. Gene Smith, he began taking photography more seriously and began working in color as early as 1948. While his art photography was recognized at the time, he was invited by Edward Steichen to be in the exhibition Always the Young Stranger and other exhibits at the Museum of Modern Art in the 1950s. He didn't actually exhibit widely until late in life, but did find success as a fashion photographer with work published in Elle, British Vogue, Nova, and later in Esquire and Harper's Bazaar. Saul Leiter passed away in 2013, leaving behind an untold number of slides and negatives, not to mention zillions of unprocessed rolls of film, and they're still finding some uh, in in the corners of the archive. In the last years of his life and posthumously, his unique color street photography and his black and white nudes have only grown in esteem, and our two guests, among others, are keeping the flame alive, and they're here to talk to us about Saul Leiter. (sighs) Ah. So, uh, Margaret. (laughs) Well, that's it. (laughs) Yes, (laughs) yes. First interaction uh, you had with Saul, what were your impressions of him?
1: Well, uh, I have to take us back to 1995, and I was working as a receptionist at Howard Greenberg Gallery in Soho. Now, Howard Greenberg Gallery at that time had black and white photography and remains today one of the great photography galleries uh, in all time history. But back in those days, it was black and white photography. And Saul was one of uh, Howard's photographers. Um, At that point in Saul's life, he was only showing his black and white work. No one had seen his color work. He had been included in a book called the New York school by Jane Livingston. And in an exhibition at the Corcoran gallery in 1993, but uh, after that point, um, uh, he was only exhibiting his black and white work. So 1995, I met Saul Leiter and um, did not quite realize uh, at that point uh, what a huge part uh, he was about to be in my life.
0: What, what, was there a reason why he um, was only showing his black and white and not his color? Did he feel that color? Because at some, at some point in time, early on, there were some people who felt that black and white was pure and color was like vile. Was, was, was that behind that or is it just something he the way he was?
1: Well, um, it has to do with uh, certain prejudices against color, which is hard to imagine today when we are seeing most contemporary photographers only working in color. Uh, but for Saul that well, wasn't the case. He started shooting in color in the 50s um, using Anscochrome and Kodachrome film which was a new technology, we have to remember. Uh, and he was shooting personal work in color. Uh, very, very few photographers were using color uh, in their artwork. Um, it was more used in the commercial side of things. And I think that's why it got a sort of a slick representation.
2: He was also using outdated film. Was that something that he, he did back then? And was it intentional or, or was that just uh, happenstance?
1: I think it was all of those things. Um, I have a feeling that he um, bought film when he didn't have much money and he couldn't spend a lot on uh, buying huge amounts of film. And perhaps the first time he bought some outdated film and he liked the results. Uh, You'd have to understand one thing about Saul is that he really loved happy accidents. He was quite akin to them. So um, when he found that he could get some sort of faded results using some outdated uh, Kodachrome or maybe some outdated Anascochrome, he he liked those results. Did he pursue them? I think a little bit. Yeah, yeah. From what he told me, yes. Mm-hmm. When you
2: first met him, anyway, or in the early years when you worked with him, what was his you know what was the working relationship like? Was he was he easygoing? Was he fun to work with? Was he? cantankerous, I don't know, all of the <laughs> above, maybe?
1: <laughs> well, at, the, at that time of his life when I met him, um, he was very happy to be represented by a gallery. He was very happy to get um, any kind of attention at all. Um, he didn't have a book published. There were no movies about Saul Leiter. Uh, he sold maybe two or three prints a year for maybe $900 each at Howard Greenberg Gallery. It's it's hard to uh, imagine but uh, his life was quiet. He had very few friends. Um, was he married?
0: Did he have a family?
1: He he lived with a wonderful woman named Soames Bantry for almost 50 years. They lived on East 10th Street in the same building. Uh, so they were um, maybe considered common-law, uh, husband and wife. Uh, but they were partners. He referred to Soames as his partner. Uh, but outside of that, he had very few friends. His uh, commercial studio, which was on Madison Avenue, had been closed down in 1981, uh, and after that things got very quiet. Um, he had a lot of constraints from his financial uh, state; uh, he wasn't making much money. It was, it was difficult. That's
0: mm-hmm. what I wanted to go back to because you had mentioned uh, you know he'd be buying film. Perhaps he didn't have uh, you know a lot of money, and, and he was using film that he could just get at whatever price. Did he always have a camera with him? Because it sounds as if He did. That's the impression I get. You said he was open to surprises. And and, and if you want to photograph surprises, you got to have a camera with you.
1: Yes. He always had his camera slung over his shoulder. Uh, And uh, it was often black and white film in it. But in the last few years of his life, he had digital cameras over his shoulders, believe it or not. Uh, Mm -hmm. Sometimes he would leave his camera at home, but that was a rare thing. He called it uh, giving the camera a vacation, but he told me <laughs> he told me that he instantly regretted not having the camera. The moment he was out on the street, he would always see something. And when you walked with Saul, he was always looking um, through a photographer's eyes. He was always on the lookout for a, for a great photograph.
0: Did he have a particular camera that you liked because uh, it seemed that he had a lot of cameras.
1: He started out actually uh, with a Detrola camera, which most of your audience, I'm sure, has never heard of. Except I've for the record, I've never heard of that one. That <laughs> that company Detrola came out with a very cheap camera of 1930s, and saw so was maybe. 13, 14 years old, and his mother bought it for him. Uh, then he then he went on to get um, a, a Graflex. He had a a, a Rollie, um, and of course the Leica camera. I mean, that's what everyone was using in the fifties. Cartier Bresson, uh William Klein—they were all using Leicas.
2: I want to jump back a little bit to you know the time in, in Pittsburgh. We you we were talking a little bit earlier about some of his contemporaries and. Uh, you mentioned that John Cage and Merce Cunningham were familiar with his work anyway, when he was a young man and, and perhaps even gave him the encouragement to, uh, you know, to break from, from the life that he had, had been planned for him. Um, would, yes. In your opinion, anyway, he had that artistic spirit from, from the get go.
1: Uh, Yes, I believe that he did. I think he uh, probably was one of the most curious-minded people that I have ever met in my life. Um, Always out uh, reading, uh, very much like his father, who uh, was a great reader and explorer that way as well. But Saul, uh, chose to explore the cultural world, the art world. Um, he stole away, uh, often to the University of Pittsburgh library, even though he wasn't a student there. He, uh, went to the art section and learned about, uh, African art, Japanese art, uh, the French Impressionists, um, and learned, uh, a lot there. Uh, he started taking uh, painting up when he was uh, a young teenager uh, and explored working with watercolors on paper, painting on the floor. And then when he was about 20 years old, he uh, started having some early success, kind of like instant success. He worked with a gallery in Pittsburgh called Outlines, which was run by a, um, an incredible woman named Betty Rockwell. And there he started to exhibit his work. Um, in 1945, Betty Rockwell invited two men from New York City, John Cage and Merce Cunningham, Cunningham to come and do workshops there. Uh, and at that time, believe it or not, John Cage purchased a painting by Saul Leiter, which hmm. was was an, an unknown, violent art from an extremely unknown young person. And uh, they later came back and taught more walk- workshops in Pittsburgh. And um, this is just a theory of mine, but I believe that the, the courage that those men had to, um, to live in New York um, and t- t- live the life that they wanted to live and to create the art that they wanted to create may have inspired Saul to um, come, come to New York and try to do the same thing.
0: I got to jump in for one second I, that without losing your thought on uh, your train of thought on that, that is actually pretty radical. If you think about it, that back in that day to be not in New York city, but be in Pittsburgh, which is a small city, I've been there. It's a beautiful place. I happen to love the yeah. town, um, but to come from an Orthodox background, yeah. I have insights into back then to, and, and if your dad, in fact, is a, a Torah scholar and a rabbi to, to venture out and do what he did was actually very radical and bold. And it took us either being totally naive or or very bold and brave to be able to do something like that. Um, Any, did they give, I know that you mentioned his mom bought him a camera, but any idea whether his parents supported him in this or, or, or gave him friction about it?
3: Well, it actually cost Saul his relationship with his family. Um, He felt that he had no choice, but to do this and he um he in fact said several times that he moved to New York City in order to escape his family home, not specifically to be an artist but to just leave that out environment that he was in that he felt had oppressed oppressed him and decided his destiny for him and it was not his the way he envisioned his life being so uh his parents disowned him after he left home and um He had occasional contact or more than occasional. He, he, he maintained something of a long distance relationship with his mother and his uh, siblings, but he was kind of considered uh, dead, dead to his father after he, he abandoned the religious life to move to New York.
1: Saul had a uh, huge respect for his father. There there wasn't a conversation really that that Michael or I had with Saul where his father wasn't mentioned. Or if you were to interview Saul in the last few years of his life, he would mention his father. His father had a huge uh, shadow over his life, but he respected his father's intelligence and personality and his his achievements for his small community uh, in Pittsburgh. There's, there's no doubt about it.
0: Did in later years did his father ever turn around and maybe accept his son a little bit better? Because you said you said he he basically disowned him, and I would say he probably sat shiver for him and the whole deal. Was it was there a reconciliation on his father's side at any point towards the end?
1: I, I remember this one story that Saul told me uh, when his father came up to New York. Um, uh, I think his father was in the habit of coming up to New York to to buy to buy books, <laughs> just like his son, and. Hmm. Uh, he visited Saul at that point, And he said to Saul, I, it's, 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 I don't imagine, I can't imagine how you, how you got away. I can't imagine how you got away, which might've been a compliment to Saul's personality, meaning like you, you should have been a rabbi because you're, you're, you're a brilliant person who knows what that comment meant. Right. But, um, I'd, I'd like to think that the two of them reconciled. Yeah, certainly. Okay.
2: I just wanted to throw something out there, and, and you know his, another contemporary of his from Pittsburgh anyway, was Warhol, uh, who right. once they broke from his Catholic background to come to New York. D- is there any connection, uh, at least personal connection, as far as you know?:
3: uh, A little bit, actually. Um, shortly after Warhol moved to New York City, Saul paid a visit to him and took a few photographs of Andy Warhol in the very early '50s of of warhol and his mother as well um he was brought to warhol's apartment we we are pretty certain by robert weaver who's another uh wonderful artist from pittsburgh who knew andy warhol better than saul did and uh he weaver brought a portfolio over to show warhol and saul tagged along and had a nice afternoon in his apartment and um Shot a few wonderful photographs of Andy Warhol and his mom, uh, and I should should also add that he shot a number of photographs of Merce Cunningham and John Cage, especially Cunningham. Mm-hmm. So we have uh, several wonderful portraits of of those artists taken by Saul. Hmm.
2: And were they portraits in, in the sense that they sat for them and, and they were lit in a studio, or were they just you know something that he might have taken when they were hanging out?
3: all just candid, uh, Mm. pictures that Saul shot on the fly, which was his Mm. preferred way of working always. He, uh, Mm. it's very rare to find any sort of controlled setup, uh, especially with, with lighting, arranged lighting, uh, coming from Saul. He, he liked to work with what, what was before him and, and, and be spontaneous and in the moment.
2: Even the fashion stuff, when you see it, is you can tell how he incorporated the the idea of street photography into his work.
3: Exactly, he liked. He didn't really see too much of a distinction between the two aesthetically. He he preferred working out on the street, not controlling the environment too much. He did some wonderful fashion work indoors and in a studio environment. But as you say, um, there's so many of his fashion works combine his street photography with with the whatever the assignment was and it's inspired and wonderful.
2: So l- let me ask them what, I mean, this is a big question, but what happened? I mean, here's somebody who, you know, at the beginning of his career anyway, was, you know, in, he had some of the greatest photographers of, of the era appreciating his work. He had, you know, several uh, exhibits or was part of several exhibits at the MoMA um, and he worked for some big fashion magazines in, until, and then you say in the, by the eighties though, was it that, you know, things had changed significantly uh he wasn't working as much what, what, what do you think kind of the, the, happened if you want to say that phrase
1: well i think uh in terms of his fashion career the fashion world was changing dramatically in the late 60s and 70s and mm-hmm. um it became much more bureaucratical mm-hmm. uh the artist uh, photographer wasn't always allowed to direct his own photography mm-hmm. um And I know um, from a story that Robert Benton, um, the great filmmaker um, and also former director at Esquire, told us uh, that uh, Saul was in the studio one day and and he looked behind him and he saw... um, three or four executives along with their secretaries and the uh, clothing designers and the manufacturers and everyone sort of telling him how to take the photograph. And he basically, uh, picked up his, his camera and, and walked off. (laughs) Um, and I think probably that did actually his story, not just a symbolic story, but I think he, he did do that, but he, he, uh, he turned his back on, um, on fashion after that. Um, even though he had enjoyed his career and was proud of his fashion photographs, he didn't like to be told what to do. And I mean, in life, Saul didn't like to be te- told what to do. Um, so things became very quiet after that, uh, unfortunately. And, and Saul wasn't a, um, a careerist. Uh, he didn't pursue uh, showing people his work. He didn't uh, contact uh, curators or publishers Um, In fact, when Steichen had the famous uh, Family of Man exhibition at MoMA in 1955, uh, he invited Saul to to participate, to submit work for that groundbreaking exhibition. And um, Saul... Declined, Uh, and the reason was he didn't want to pay for the
3: frames. (laughs) Yeah, he he was in a wider sense, John. He was he was sort of allergic to ambition, and Mm -hmm. he really he doing the work seemed to be you know the really important thing to him. And he was, as Margaret mentioned, just he would not be a self promoter. And he another story that he would tell us was that. He was going through some some envelopes that he found in his apartment one day in the, you know, say in the mid-2000s. And he opened up an envelope, and it was it was an invitation to participate in an exhibition from 1978. Oh, oh. And he just, he would tell us this story and just laugh, laugh, laugh about it. But it is too bad. And, and he really, once he, uh, once Early Color came out, he really loved the attention, and he, he, totally enjoyed his moment that's great but, yeah yeah but saul's uh,
1: saul's talent came to people by word of mouth uh for example edward steichen didn't leave saul alone even after saul rejected him he included saul in a slide talk actually at moma in 1957 called uh experimental photography and color mm-hmm. uh, and and later on in saul's life um The news of his talent spread to Jane Livingston, who was the writer and curator for the great book and exhibition, the New York School of Photography.
2: And you mentioned Avedon also helped him out a little bit, no?
1: Yes, well, the the story about Avedon, um, who was very determined to show people his work, very different (laughs) from Saul. Um, The two of them were contemporaries, um, colleagues, actually, at Harper's Bazaar. Uh, They both dominated the pages through the 50s. Um, And 60s, um, mostly 60s, actually. Uh, But when Jane Livingston was working on the book, uh, she had uh, certain photographers in mind, Uh, you know, of course, Diane Arbus, William Klein, Bruce Davidson, uh, Lizette Modell, those would all be uh, in the New York school book, uh, Avedon. So when she went to see Avedon, um, he told her, you know, you should really go and check out this work by this guy named Saul Leiter. You would really, really like his work. And he was really one of the last photographers to be included in, in her book. He was like a last minute uh, um, uh, photographer there, uh, which is which is amazing. And then it was Jane Livingston. Who then went to Howard Greenberg and said, Hey, Howard Greenberg, uh, there's this really great photographer and, uh, he could really use your help because he's got no money and, um, but he's really, really talented. Go, go check him out. Something
0: I want to go back to for a moment. You mentioned the fact that, uh, we were talking about his, his fashion work and his business slowed down the eighties because fashion again, taste and, and, and fashion change, uh, and there's uh, a new flavor of the month all the time. That's nothing new. Um, what's interesting is that if you look at a lot of his work and I was just looking especially the nude stuff and stuff like that it is dead on to what a lot of contemporary advertising is all about the unstructured informalness of it and 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 the casualness of it uh, and mm-hmm. the compositions they lend themselves perfectly to anything that you'd see for a major ad campaign of the past mm-hmm. day it's it's come around
1: yeah yeah absolutely his uh, his his view of, of women um, is, I uh, shall I say almost like contemporary. It is uh, mm-hmm. very true. The, He brings out the spirit and the individualism in them and the strength in them, uh, which is something that we're used to seeing today, but I, I think for then it was just I'm um, very unusual.
0: I wonder if his father saw any of those. <laughs>
3: <laughs> you know, that that work that work uh didn't start coming to light until after his father's death, actually, because um in the 70s, Saul, along with his friend Henry Wolf, who uh was one of his best friends, they met when Wolfe was art director at Esquire and later Harper's Bazaar, and you know, gave Saul many of his uh best assignments. Um he, Saul and Henry Wolf had planned a book of Saul's nudes in the seventies, and it, it, for one reason or another, it never happened. So those images only started to be seen. There are a couple of them in the early black and white book from two thousand fourteen, and several of them in the um, German book called Saul Leiter Retrospective, which came out a couple of years before that. But uh, and then, of course, in my room. Um, from 2000, I believe that came out in 2018 from Steidel, really, uh, opened up that body of work to the world for the first time, along with the book women.
2: To Alan's point, I found, and to your point, I found that book in a, like a hipster store in Williamsburg last year mm. and, uh, mm. and thumbed through it before I even looked at the author. And I, I, I thought it was somebody, you know, just a young photographer's work. So Wow. Wow. Yeah. Um, I wanted to ask about the, uh, you know, the, and we'll get to more of this in, in the second half of the show, but the, you know, the, the back trove of undeveloped film, was that partly a, a part of uh, a financial reason or was it, and this is, gets to my, my, my question, which is, did he kind of consider the photo finished when he took it or did he, you know, work on the images afterwards? Uh, did he, you know, in the early years, did he work in the dark room and then later, did he even work in Photoshop?
3: That's a good question. Um, the, in terms of the undeveloped film, we have various theories about that. That we we're not sure, but we think that um, it's quite possible that Saul knew when he had had a, a bad day, so to speak, and might have put a roll away, uh, knowing that there wasn't much there, and and you know he didn't need to get to it anytime soon. That's one theory about the undeveloped film, um, because he really did know what he had and he he did consider a photograph finished after he had taken it and we're seeing evidence of that as we explore his massive slide archive which has been one of our major projects have started uh, a a couple of years ago saw left behind 60 to 80,000 color slides and along with a um, PhD candidate in from Berlin who got a grant to study Saul's slide work, we have been unearthing these slides and we've started going through them and we're learning so much about his, his life in photography through examining these slides. And one thing that we've seen over and over is that he, he tended to capture what he was going for with just a few clicks of the shutter. He, he didn't have, you know, many, many attempts at getting a shot, uh, in, in most cases, sometimes he returned to say a certain foggy window, uh, a bunch of times, depending on who or what was behind it. And he experimented that way. But in general, he seems to have captured, uh, what he was after quickly and moved on. And then he, he really didn't do any post, uh, production work. He didn't crop uh, generally. And, um, and in terms of digital photography, he would fill up a card with one of his digital cameras and he'd just throw it in a bowl. He didn't really ever get to go through those digital cards uh, very much. And of course, what is on those uh, cards shows the salt lighter style strongly, you know, through the, through the two thousands and up until uh, the point that he died.
1: He loved, he loved um, the invention of digital uh, cameras. Um, he, he, he bought about 25 of them. <laughs> Once he started having money again, that's what he, what he bought. And, uh, one of the things that he loved about the digital cameras is he could take a picture and see the results instantly. He didn't have to send it away to Eastman Kodak to have it developed. He didn't have to uh, go into a dark room. It was right there, uh, for him. And, um, He, he bought so many cameras and, and at first he didn't quite know how to use them, um, but he was great at embracing new technologies. Uh, and every time he bought a camera, he he g- he would give the camera to me, and I would take it home to New Jersey and learn how to use it over the weekend and bring it back and teach him. And he learned how to take a picture, manipulate the camera. Um, he knew how to delete, but he but he deleted nothing. <laughs> um, and uh, just, as he, great, just as he just as he knew how
3: to throw, throw things away, he knew how to do it. He just never did it.
1: <laughs> no no never never never
3: in terms of Saul's trail of breadcrumbs that he left for us it, it, with all these thousands of slides and also thousands of negatives and then hundreds of rolls of undeveloped film that you know our best our best progression is to go from the slides to the negatives and then finally try to figure out what's on those undeveloped rolls in terms of a hierarchy of of knowing what Saul himself looked through and chose for printing.
1: Okay. Yeah, I think we're going to learn a lot more in the next few years of going through his slide archive. Uh, one of the things I'm excited about is um, to find more of his elder, early color work, of course, uh, but also to find more of his his fashion work. He was really one of the great fashion photographers. He had international recognition, mm-hmm. um, and his images are just beautiful, beautiful. Um,
2: that reminds me, I, I wanted to was he, you know, a good businessman at all? Like in terms of <laughs> I guess most of those photos, photos back he didn't have the didn't have the, yeah, he <laughs> didn't have the, the rights of those photos, but did he, you know, were they licensed secondarily? Did he keep on top of that at all? Or I get the sense not.
1: Uh, I don't think that he worked with a contract. I've, I've never come across anything like that with Harper's Bazaar. Um, and sadly, what we've we've heard from Harper's Bazaar is a lot of that archive um, that they kept um, because their art directors were infamous for not returning work to the uh, photographers. A lot of that archive was just destroyed. They just tossed it out. Mm-hmm. They just didn't. They didn't know better. Um, Can ask
2: a little bit about the uh, about the East Village because he you know he lived basically his whole life in in on East 10th Street, uh, and you know anyone outside of New York might not know, but you know it's a great neighborhood. It's was bohemian neighborhood, maybe not so much any longer, but still vibrant and and wonderful for photographing. If you're out walking around, uh, most of his a lot of his photos were taken in that neighborhood. Correct?
3: Yes, that's right uh, the, in fact, the majority of, of his street work was done within just a few blocks of his apartment. And that's something we've been thinking about a lot lately. Um, while we're all locked down at home, um, the fact that Saul didn't need to go anywhere, uh, far beyond his front door, uh, to do amazing work and to discover, uh, things that no one had ever seen before. And, and in fact, Uh, during the late forties and the fifties, when he did a lot of his groundbreaking color street photography in his neighborhood, during those same years, he was doing, uh, black and white nudes and other, other, uh, intimate portraits inside his apartment. So he really, and of course, while painting every day, all the while. So he really just found inspiration all around him and, um, in terms of the east village he really liked uh first avenue where the buildings are quite low they i don't think any of them go above 3 stories and the light is really beautiful there and so um he he said that he would enjoy walking on first avenue um but yeah that was that was his his favorite place to to take pictures just just right near his his home all right
2: And and you had mentioned the phrase breadcrumbs uh, earlier is, did he tend to, or at least are you able to kind of figure it out from looking at his images? Did he tend to, you know, walk the same blocks and, and, you know, do like a little, I don't know, a a little pattern uh, day in, day out, as many photographers do, at least I do. But, uh, or did he like to discover new parts of the neighborhood?
3: Well, we know that he had uh, his little routines, like for instance, late, Uh, In his life, he would go to Starbucks on Second Avenue, just about every day, and get his coffee and morning bun. But he
1: lived at the he lived at the Strand Bookstore. Yeah, he was at the Strand every week.
3: Oh wow! Ah. Yeah, yeah, that was his favorite place. And uh, you know, his massive library—I'd say you know at least half the books still had a. Forty nine cent sticker from the Strand still on them.
1: Uh, we yeah. often laugh that if there was a if there is a heaven for Saul later, there it'll definitely be a bookstore, <laughs> <But> <laughs> or in, a library. Yes,
0: exactly. Hardly, I think it's worth mentioning that you know I looked at your the uh, short documentary you did on on the foundation and it's beautifully done. Okay, uh, his his apartment is intact the way he lived in it and uh, it's absolutely stunning. It is a period piece. It is a time capsule. Uh, It sums up his whole personality, just looking at the things on the walls, on the counters, on the desk. You get a very strong portrait of who this person was. And it's amazing that it is still intact. And I think it's to your credit. Thank you. It's great.
1: Well, he um he moved into that apartment uh, in 1952, and uh, as far as we can tell, there was been no renovation uh, uh, at least since then. <laughs> and the apartment is is in is in a dangerous point in some areas. Um, there's chips of paints and ceiling that's still sort of coming down. Um, but he he was very lucky. He moved into um, a building on 10th street that, um, in a time when they were trying to sort of gentrify the neighborhood, um, they were trying to entice artists to come, to come live there. And one of the things that they did was they put in these giant studio windows, um, that face North. Mm -hmm. And so Saul Leiter had the Northern light, one of the, you know the uh-huh. best light to paint under, the best natural light to paint under, um, for his whole life. Um, and so, when we take photographs in Saul's studio, we almost rarely have to use artificial light because the light's just flooding in.
2: So, let me ask real quickly then about his painting, and and maybe specifically, uh, uh, I noticed that you know he he would also paint on some of his photographs. Is that true? Uh, and and he did continue to paint throughout his life. Did he? Uh, can you discuss a little bit about? you know, the, those two kind of art forms. And, and I know he, there's a quote that uh, was in, in your documentaries, you know, about, uh, you know, the idea of photography is what you find and painting is what you make. Uh, and was he happy doing both?
3: Yeah, he, uh, he liked to do both as a daily practice throughout his life. And he didn't mm. He didn't like to be asked uh, to choose one above the other. He, he, he couldn't do it, but he would um, often note that he was a painter first before he was a photographer. And the majority of his paintings were done on paper using water-based paints. And most of them are abstract, about a quarter or a fifth of them are figurative. Uh, very, very bright colors, very um, bold use of color and composition. Um, he, he didn't try to make too many connections between his painting and his photography, but of course there is the one major project that unites the two, which is his painted photographs. And earlier I mentioned that he had been working on a book of his nudes in the seventies with Henry Wolfe that didn't, uh, come to fruition. And so a few years later in the early eighties, once he had, uh, given up his commercial studio, Due to uh, non-payment of taxes, and uh, and his his fashion career had ended, um, he he would take some of these prints that he printed himself, these black and white nudes that he made in his dark room, and pull out his paints and he would paint on the photographs. And we have found about roughly a thousand of those, and oftentimes they were in his books, they were, they were like, like bookmarks within Saul's, uh, many books. As we, as we, you know, went through piles of books, we would pull out these beautiful painted photographs. And we think that that project gave him some solace during a very difficult point in his life when things were very quiet. Uh, he had financial difficulties and, um, they're really unlike anything else in in uh, that we've seen they're very colorful, but yet you can still see uh, those lighter women uh, shining through behind them
1: you know he he came to fruition as a painter photographer right around the same time that the great abstract expressionist movement uh, was happening uh, one of the great art movements, the greatest art movement perhaps ever in the United States, and you definitely see. Influence in um, uh, abstractions and foreground, uh, the, the switching of foregrounds and backgrounds, the b- blocks of uh, fields of color. Um, you definitely see it in, in both. Um, you know, he, he was a great, uh, lover of, uh, French painting. Um, I also wanted to mention that too. He loved, um, Matisse and Cezanne. He loved all the great French painters, the, the Impressionists. Um, he loved Vuillard, uh, but perhaps his, his favorite, uh, painter of all time was Bonnard, Pierre Bonnard, uh, absolutely loved, loved his work and had more books on, on Bonnard's work than, than anyone else, um, His library taught us so much about um, where his affinities for painting uh, lay. Um, For example, he loved Japanese art. Um, He had maybe 3,000 books in his library, and I would say about 10% of those were dedicated to uh, either uh, Japanese artists themselves or Japanese anthology of of painting. incredible.
2: Did he... uh care for his paintings in a way that is different than the way he cared for his photos. I mean, when you, when you looked at his, his apartment and the way he stored things, is there any indication that this is something that he, he valued uh, perhaps more so, or did he docu- document them at all or, or was they just there for you to find?
1: Well, he, um, his paintings were in portfolios. Uh, they were you know on tissue on paper, so they were stored flat. Um, but generally, Saul's organizational skills, w- while they existed, <laughs> were rather chaotic. Um, I think he was always sorting through his slides. Um, in fact, we got a lot of direction on uh, his slides just based on the boxes that were closest to the light table. But his, his one of his rooms was just full of, of color slides and paintings all mixed together. And it was one of the s- scarier times um, after Saul passed away was just where to begin um, without causing damage as we extracted things from his different rooms. Uh, A lot of the black and white and color prints photographs were in non-archival boxes, which we had to quickly get them out of uh, those boxes. And the paintings, some of them were 60, 70 years old and paper does disintegrate. Uh, So he, he had them organized, uh, but, uh, it was not a, uh, a very safe, uh, situation, <laughs> but nevertheless, he loved them. <laughs>
2: ha- has his paintings exhibited at all?
1: So Saul had an exhibition, uh, at Nodler gallery, which has since closed, but, um, he had an exhibition there in 2008 and it was the first exhibition of his paintings in 40 years, um, beautiful exhibition and we uh created a small uh catalog but no his his paintings really have yet to be uh discovered they're they're absolutely beautiful
3: we have been uh including them in larger retrospective exhibitions recently um, in japan and europe
0: all right we're going to take a short break when we come back we're going to talk about the saw lighter archive stay tuned We hope you're enjoying this edition of the BH Photography Podcast. The best way to support the show is by subscribing on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. For links to gear and more information on today's guests, check out the show notes in your podcast app or visit our homepage on the BH Explorer website and join the BH Photography Podcast Facebook group. And now, back to the show. Okay, we are back. Uh, question, let's, let's talk a little bit about the archive and how things have been going on there. What was the first major step in organizing uh, Saul's work?
1: Well, uh, <laughs> walking in the door <laughs> was the first step. Um, no, uh, we first, uh, uh, tried to, uh, extract the, the prints, um, out of their non-archival boxes and, uh, get them safely, uh, into, into new boxes. And we've been inventorying, um, everything, um, creating basically like a digital catalog resume. So every, uh, painting, every, every photograph has uh, an inventory, um, Uh, Number, Um, we actually for the IRS we had to count everything. Um, They they said uh, you can figure out how you're going to settle this estate later on, but for now we want you to count everything. So the first thing that we did was count and count, and count, uh, prints and, uh, paintings. Uh, we had to count slides and, and negatives. Um, and after we survived that, uh, difficult moment, um, How many
0: days did it take uh, before that started getting old? <laughs> <laughs> I'm, so sorry. I'm sorry go ahead i, I couldn't ahead.
1: you know honestly alan it never gets old i yeah, i really? uh i i i see things michael sees things every day even now you know almost seven years later since Saul's passing where we're like oh my god i've never seen this before and isn't it incredible so it, it, it doesn't <laughs> get tre- old
0: <laughs> treasure hunting on a certain level absolutely oh yeah absolutely f- for sure for sure.
1: I mean, I, I, we're looking at his slide archive now, and so I'm seeing images that I really have never seen before. But I, I realize that I'm seeing what he saw in an instant, in a moment, in a place 50, 60 years ago. So it is... It's like walking in someone's footsteps, but even better—you're looking through their eyes at an exact moment. It's one of the magics of yeah. magic of Saul and of photography itself, really.
3: Yeah, and we will—we ad- yeah. yeah. will admit uh, to you that we haven't completed the cataloging of the work, so uh, our our delight, our delightful surprises are are coming still at a nice clip.
0: And you mentioned that most of his digital uh, imagery is is still on the cards that they were shot to. Is that correct? That's true. Yes. That's true. So you have, that's basically digital unexposed film. So you have all that to go through. So you got a lot of surprises yet to come is my guess.
1: We we've downloaded all the digital photographs onto hard drives. Um, that was six years ago. Now we realize we've got to, switch to newer technology and, tr- and transfer them once again because um, digital is always changing, right? It's a, it's a new technology still. Yeah.
0: And yeah, the it- negatives are still there and you can hold them in your hands and print them. Isn't that something?
3: Yeah. They, yeah, they something. too are incredible. <laughs> we just looked through uh, some boxes of negatives for the first time in many years um, in order to, to uh, explore the idea of digitizing those. And again, we were blown away by what we saw new facets of the work, uh, that we had never seen before. And I I will mention that it's a, it remains a priority to go first through the work that Saul himself chose for printing or actually did print. So we, we haven't gotten too far into, uh, work that Saul himself never went through, but, uh, that looms large in the future. The slide project is the first time, we're really getting deeply into that work.
0: Do you have a tier system set up where you, you pick up one and go, oh my God, look at this one, and, and you have to set them aside, and some of them go, this is really good, and but there's some better. I mean, how are you breaking it down? How many categories, and and at what percentage, if it's fair to ask, are 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 there of, of say now in this case slides that you just go okay these are just to the side it 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 doesn't these are not really important or are you really finding a lot of important stuff there and very few that you would say are insignificant.
1: I would say that Saul's uh, percentage of success, his rate of success, was extremely high, and he knew it himself. He was not um, shy. Uh, he he knew uh, he believed in his work. Um, he was a confident uh, artist. Um, and when we go through his slides today, I I would say it's a high percentage where we're 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 stunned by how how good they are. Um, we quickly assembled uh, eighty uh new images from his slide archive just from a few months work and we mounted an exhibition of them in a big black box in japan so a giant slide um uh slideshow uh foresaw uh in january And, and people were were absolutely stunned um he was very successful each time he said to to us when he was alive that what we had seen so far of his color work was just the tip of of the iceberg and um that seems to be the case. <laughs> did he
0: shoot a lot of each subject or did he take a picture and move on? Or, or, you know, how did he work? When you look through his stuff that you know is a solid roll of film, did it look like he shot three or four or 10 pictures or is each one a totally different situation? So he took, went click and left.
3: It's closer to two, three, four, than to 10. Yeah. As I was okay. saying earlier, he really, he seemed to find what he was looking for quickly and, and then he would move on. Um, I will mention about the slides uh, that there is an issue of color degradation on a lot of them. So mm-hmm. uh, many of them have would need color correction in order to be presented in any format, um, and so that's that kind of makes certain choices for us uh, as we as we, for instance, as we were looking for images to present in the black black box projection room in Japan. There were clearly beautiful images, but they had. They had uh, gone red over the years because the other colors fell away.
0: If um, it went red, it was probably Ansco Chrome. Uh, you're right. I, yep. saw, no, I saw a shooting slide film fifty years ago, and and I, I too, I'm going through my archives, and I've got the Kodachromes are dead on. They're amazing. Yep, yep that's um, exactly what we're finding. Chrome Fuji, uh, the early Fujis, and some of the Ansco's. Yeah, they they all start going off, and you could save them to a certain extent when you scan them if you know what you're doing, but. Uh, every year that goes by, they're just getting worse and worse and worse. You really are, are are chasing the clock right now in many ways with a lot of this work. Yes, that's true. Yes,
1: yeah, Saul, Saul was very lucky, though, to have run into um, Philippe Lamont, who is one of the great color printers, uh, still working today, uh, Lamont Labs uh, here in Manhattan. And Philippe Lamont helped preserve um, uh, a lot of the slides um, into digital um, by by scanning them. Uh, he printed for Saul uh, in 1995. He got a, a grant from the Ilford Paper Company to, to print for Saul. So we're lucky that we're actually able to preserve a lot of these images uh, digitally if they do uh, proceed to uh, disintegrate. Um, but, yeah, it's true. The Kodachrome is absolutely beautiful. And some of the Anscochrome is, is, too, we we find um, um that, that period is, is just incredible in the 50s when we come across a 50s ansco or Kodachrome saw, saw a lighter slide we're we're, we're nowhere we're in for something good we're nowhere are due for something great
2: can I ask uh, I mean you you uh, you know you knew Sal when he was alive of course and you work with him did he leave instructions you know for you guys going forward did were there legal documents and 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 also is there any kind of endowment that he left to run the archive
1: ah uh, yeah so so he didn't want to do any estate planning whatsoever. Right. He was not inclined to spend, and he, he told me this, he was not inclined to spend the last days of his life or last years of his life, organizing anything like what we have, have now. Right. He just decided that he was going to leave everything in in my hands. He um, he had, he had incredible faith in me and, um, the confidence that he's given me t- today. I, I, I mean, I, I, still, um, I will have it for the rest of my life. He, he knew that I could be trusted to take care of things. And I knew what he wanted, having worked with him for 18 years. Um, I worked one day a week, uh, when I was not at the gallery, I was working with, with Saul organizing his archives. So, um, after we, after he passed away, uh, we had to work with teams of, of, of lawyers, uh, tax lawyers, estate lawyers. Um, it was a difficult time, but we had some great uh, professional help uh, most, most of the time. And um, less than a year later, we were able to create the Saul Leiter Foundation. And we are a, a non-profit Uh, private operating, artist-endowed foundation. So we're able to, uh, with funding from Saul's artwork and his licensing and his exhibitions and books, we're actually able to fund uh, projects and programs that are are charitable. That's
2: wonderful. So I guess you have to balance the... You know, the idea of getting his work, his more well-known work out there, uh, whether it's through licensing or exhibitions to, to keep the name alive and to keep money coming in and, and, and then balance that with discovering the stuff that hasn't been seen. And, and how do you how do you do that? How do you, you know, divide that time and, and what gets priority?
3: That's a good question. Um, for instance, with the best known color work, uh, we have only a certain amount of inventory that uh, of lifetime prints that Saul signed or, or printed, uh, in his lifetime. And so we are concerned with, uh, burning through that work too fast. So we Mm -hmm. limit the sales of, of that, those lifetime prints. And, but in terms of print sales, there have been no posthumous prints for sale. Mm -hmm. Um, but going through the archive and finding the unseen work and promoting it is of course, so exciting to us. And but but we're being very careful uh, to make the distinction between what Saul chose in his lifetime and what we've discovered, uh, for instance, using the with the slide archive.
1: I think what makes Saul so uh, exciting and still very much um, viable and contemporary artist is because these discoveries are still coming out. He's um he's an exciting artist to to follow. Um, and I think in subsequent books from now, uh, people are going to learn more about him. Uh, okay. There's endless material to to review. It's like Michael and I have a lot of pots on the stove cooking all at once, <laughs> I imagine. I imagine. and uh, it's 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 a lot of, it's a lot of fun. We're um, we're so honored to have this job for can sure. You,
2: can you speak about putting together the the, the early color book and, and how that kind of jump started a little bit? Uh, you know, the revival uh, of his career.
1: Yes. Yes. So, um, uh, that's the little book, uh, that changed Saul's life. Uh, it was his first book. Uh, it came out in 2006, but we started working on it in 1998, uh, back when no one was really interested in, in color photography or books of color. There were very, very few artists, um, especially working with color in the fifties. So Saul and the gallery, um, and I, we put this book, uh, together, um, uh, a maquette and we found one publisher who signed a contract with Saul, but then that publisher went out of business and then another publisher who bought it after that, but, but, um, didn't go on to print it. And then finally, finally in 2004, uh, Gerhard Steidl, the great German art publisher bought the rights. Um, and then it the book came out another two years later. So we, we waited almost 10 years, uh, this book to come out. Um, But after that book came out, um, Saul went from from making a few print sales a year to having an enormous response from collectors uh, and museums all over the world. Uh, He had an exhibition uh, at the Milwaukee Museum of Art thereafter. He had an exhibition at the Cartier-Bressant Foundation in Paris. I was working at the gallery then, and we had calls from collectors uh, in Paris and in Germany saying who is this person like why haven't I come across him like I, I'm learning about color photography now or I'm adding to my color collection and I've never heard of him and he is he is so good so that that little book turned around everything and it hasn't stopped for Saul since and you know the only requirement that he had for that book was the was the size he just wanted a small square little book that could fit on his his nightstand Um, And when the book finally landed in his hands, he didn't, uh, you know, hip, hip, hooray or make any loud noise. He was just very uh, content with it. Um, But it sure did create a lot of excitement in the art world and still does.
3: It's possible that that delay in the book being produced was very auspicious, that during the time between 1998 and 2006, when the book finally came out, the world was ready for it then and in a way that maybe they weren't ready to embrace color photography in the late 90s or very early 2000s it, it mm-hmm. might have been it might have been a very fortunate delay for for saul
2: interesting yeah possibly possibly it's also just great to know that you know later in his life and, and when this happened he was happy with the success or happy with the the newfound success i mean that's i guess for any artist uh, very important and and, and it's, yeah
1: it did not change his life that much. Yeah. He um, he didn't go out and buy a car or a yacht or a condo or anything yeah. like that. Yeah. He he stayed at home and he drank coffee. He went to Starbucks and the Strand and he painted every day. And I think he was just pleased that his light bills could be paid for the yeah. first you know time yeah. in many years. And he wasn't going to get kicked out of his apartment.
2: Yeah. yeah, but a coffee, you know, when you're a famous artist with a little money in the bank, tastes a little bit better, right? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's got to. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, what about his gear? And, and, you know, what do you do with that? What did he leave behind? Was, was there a lot of stuff, you know, and what kind of cameras did he leave behind and what have you done with them?
1: Uh, so he had about uh, 25 film cameras left behind, uh, Leicas, Canons, uh, a couple of Graflex, some Rollies, um and we've kept all of those. Uh, he had 25 digital cameras. I did not keep all of those. Some of those we donated to ICP. Uh, but we kept, um, he had a Lumix, uh, camera that he loved, um, which I still, still carry with me, um, and photograph with. Did
2: he love you? Was he, uh, you know, a photographer that's into the cameras and into lenses and stuff or not so much?
1: He wasn't your traditional gear nut. He uh, he definitely knew how to use them all, and, and like I said, he embraced new technologies. He was not um, discouraged by uh, new technology. He um, went right into it. Um, but uh, the cameras, no, he um, he he kept them clean, and he um, they were his 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 partner, his life his life partners. They they went with him everywhere. Even when we were traveling in Europe, uh, he had exhibitions in Amsterdam and in, in Germany and Hamburg and in Paris. Those, those cameras were one of the few objects that were were in the suitcase.
0: Did he have a particular focal length that he liked? If he uh, uh, like thirty five millimeter or fifty? Because uh, I was looking at the pictures, it doesn't look like anything extreme,
1: wide or long. No, that's true. He um, uh, he. he I think he was usually usually 15 millimeter, 60 millimeter. Um, I think some of his fashion work, though, from what I understand, he he did use a zoom lens uh, because it, it allowed him to be a distance away from the model. Uh, there was a famous story that Grace Coddington told where she. <laughs> she was sent to meet Leiter in a park, uh, probably Madison Square Park near his studio, and she was dressed up in the required uh, fashion um, outfit and she went out there and she walked around Madison Square Park and she couldn't see him, she couldn't see him, and she went back into the studio and she <laughs> said to Henry Wolf, I, I, I went out to meet him, saw Leiter, he wasn't there. Of course, later, later it came out that Saul was there and had had photographed her and uh, came up with some wonderful <laughs> images from, from a great awesome. distance away with his with his zoom lens. That's awesome! Oh my god! Yeah, that's like the
2: perfect fashion shoot. It sounds like yeah, yeah, right. <laughs> wow, that's great. And what about like paperwork and receipts? I mean, was that left behind? And, and has that kind of offered you guys a? Uh, you know, a trail to kind of trace his work and his his business dealings with? It
3: has indeed. Yeah. He, he Mm -hmm. never threw anything away. So, uh, all of his, all of his, um, documents and travel receipts and, and things like that are, are intact. Um, and
1: American express bills from the seventies. Yeah.
3: (laughs) We have a, we have an invoice from, uh, Diane Arbus from a, uh, photograph that he had bought from her. And first she sent, Sent it to Saul and said, "You know, here you go, Saul. Thank you." And then there's a, a another one from about a, a month later that says, "Saul, it is more urgent than it was." <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, in other words, it's time to Did pay up, pal. <laughs> yeah, because she was his neighbor uh, for a spell on East 10th Street as well. Wow. But yeah, we have uh, we have a lot of um, fascinating receipts from his. Travel fashion assignments in Europe, for instance, um, uh, receipts from Sennelier in Paris, and and things like that. Um, it's it's we're looking forward to. We've presented a few of these things in exhibitions, but we look forward to uh, showing more.
2: What do you guys do in terms of digital storage? What what do you well what what drives do you use and, and kind of what's your your method your theory on that in terms of you know the general ideas three places and, and is that what you follow? Yes. Yes. Yeah. Uh, it is
3: an ABC type of um, situation where we we have things backed up uh, in several locations. We do use solid state drives for SSDs for uh, our offsite backup. I, I will say that in terms of uh, print files, we tend to use Philippe Lamont's labs to uh generate new files for printing that uh that are better than anything we we store on our own system so it's sort of an as needed basis that we uh generate those files the ones that we have would work for say a magazine reproduction uh we do have a a good store of um of high-res files of early color work and and uh and other sort of prominent well-known pieces. But when it's time to make a print, we don't, we don't use our own files for that.
1: For the slide capture uh, itself, we do use uh, a Nikon camera, uh, an SLR. We use a copy stand uh, with a light tray below the slide. Um, and capture it that way. We're not scanning the slides. We're actually photographing them one by one so that we can make little uh, adjustments and get the focus and grain uh, correct. Um, And it takes us uh, at our fastest speed, um, maybe two or three minutes per slide to catalog them and photograph them. So you can imagine what task we have in front of us if you're talking about 60 or 80,000 slides.
0: I don't have that many slimes in my collection, but I've been doing this <laughs> thing again with, with, with yeah, a different yeah. camera and a whole setup where yep. I'm photographing, I clean them, I photograph them, I walk yep.
2: off the whole thing. And yes, that is very uh, labor intensive. You know, the Greenberg gallery has obviously been a big supporter of Saul's work. Uh, are they the, you know, the exclusive gallery for his work? And also, can you speak, I know you have an upcoming, at least virtual exhibit of his work, uh, probably will be up very soon. Can you speak about that?
1: Yes. The Howard Greenberg gallery in New York is the primary representing gallery, uh, for Saul Leiter and they will have exhibitions there every two, two, three years. Uh, but they're also bringing Saul's work to some great art fairs. Um, we did not have Perry photo New York this year, but hopefully that'll come back, uh, for, for next year. And, um, we were really excited that in this time period where we're working from home, we had um, two online exhibitions that came out um, mm-hmm. that are, are out now. One at Howard Greenberg Gallery uh, about Saul's color work, um, and the other one is at 28 Vignon Street. Um, which mm-hmm. is uh, spelled V-I-G-N-O-N street. And that is where you can see some images from Saul's color slide archive that have never been seen before. So um, there are um, some online um, explorations uh, to be had right now. It's exciting. That's great.
0: Margaret and Michael, thank you so, so much for uh, joining us today. It's, it's been really uh, um really informative. And his, his, uh, again, Saul Leiter's work is pretty amazing. If you haven't seen it, check out our show notes and, or do a Google search, whatever. Um, and speaking of such, if people want to take a look at more of what you guys are doing and more of Saul's work, uh, what about uh, some of the sites they can go to, places to do?
1: Well, a great place to start is the SaulLeiterFoundation.org website. Okay. That gives you all the links to current exhibitions and publications. Mm hmm.
3: Yes. And then, and then Howard Greenberg Gallery's site and 28 Vignon Street as well.
2: Hmm. How about Instagram?
3: Uh, We we don't have a social media presence. Anything that you'll find on Instagram is unofficial, including many photographs that were not taken by Salt Lighter that people. (laughs) <laughs> uh, assume were uh, we get a lot of reproduction requests for images that where we have to say actually that's not a lighter Interesting. <laughs>
0: uh. and again all of these uh, uh uh sites will be on our show notes Margaret and michael thank you so so much for joining us today it's been a pleasure having you guys on the show
3: thank you it's been wonderful
1: thank you so much pleasure
0: my name is alan white and as always on behalf of john and jason thank you so much for tuning in today